Lord, we just sang profound words, true words, godly words. And Lord, as we allow those words to resonate from our mouths, may they also resonate from our hearts. From hearts that seek to make you the ruler, not of only of all this world like you certainly are, but especially Lord and sovereign and master over us individually. And so Lord, this morning and next week as we press into hard truths, as we look at the role of a wife and a role of a husband, and as we see how these are so countercultural in perspective, God, I pray that you would help us to see Christ in these passages, these verses. And Lord, that we would be able to embrace the truths that we read for the sake of making much of Jesus. Be not only ruler of our hearts, be the supreme affection of our hearts. Be the one who satisfies, the, the one who is our all in all in every way. And God, as we have come to you in faith, in salvation, Lord, I pray that that faith would bear out itself from day to day and show up in how we live, show up in how we love, show up in how we work, show up in how we respond to really difficult things, to the glory of God. May Jesus Christ be praised in and through our lives, we ask in your name. Amen. Well, this has uh, been a summer of, of weddings for me, uh, attending weddings, that is. Um, I haven't had multiple weddings. <laughs> but I, I was thinking about this a little bit. There were three weddings this summer that I attended. I don't think there's ever been a summer in my lifetime where I've gone to so many weddings in, in the course of just two or three months. Um, maybe some of you have gone to, to several others. I know even in my own family, um, I've got uh, some members who have been to lots of weddings this summer. And wherever you have gone to a wedding and, and however uh, the ceremony is kind of orchestrated, you're going to hear a line or a phrase or a vow that's going to sound a little like this with, with maybe some nuances. I'll put this in from my perspective to my wife. I, Andrew, take you, Sarah, to be my beloved wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, to honor, and to cherish as long as we both shall live. Now, maybe you've heard those kinds of words. Maybe you have made that kind of promise. But I want you to know the measure of a man or a woman is not in their ability to make promises, but in their ability to keep them. You might be a big promise maker, but the question is, are you a promise keeper? And perhaps there is no more important relationship on earth that helps to point to the picture of Christ's love for the church and Christ's love for the world than marriage. I think especially of the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5, 22. It begins with wives. It says, wives, be submissive to your husbands as to Christ. 
For as Christ is the head of the husband, so too is the husband the head of the wife. And so a woman's submission, a woman's subjection to her husband is not primarily submission to him, but primarily submission to God. It's a picture, a beloved picture of the love that God has, that Jesus has for his bride, the church. And as the passage continues in verse 25, I believe it starts with husbands. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present her to himself a beautiful church, sanctifying her with the washing of the word. Husbands, love your wives like Jesus loves his church. We're going to talk about that more next week. And how did Jesus' love Uh, express itself in the greatest way? He died to himself. Husbands, are you willing to die to yourself for the sake of love to your bride, for the sake of love to Christ? That's the kind of love that we're called to. That, That is the beautiful, vivid, HD color picture of the love of Jesus for his church. We get to show Christ to the world by the way we love our spouse. So this morning, as we look into 1 Peter chapter 3, that's going to be kind of the, the, the course that is set for us over the next two weeks. We're going to deal with the, the love and submission of wives to their husbands this morning. Uh, and for you husbands, come back next week because we're going to be talking about the significance of a husband's love and sacrifice for his wife. This picture of the cross stands preeminent for us. And in the, in the chapter breaks, as, as we're going to see, the chapter breaks are, are a little bit of a disservice because I want you to understand that, that what we read in chapter 2, verses 22 to 25, is meant to be directly connected to what we're going to read here this morning and next week. It uses the, what we've been calling hinge words, the, the word likewise, to help us see there's a connecting point There's a truth that we're building on. There's an application to the things that we've learned. And primarily what has been in the immediate context for us is the ministry of Christ for us. His suffering of Christ for his flock. To this you've been called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should walk in his steps. Husbands, wives, look to Christ. And we're going to see that all the way through our passage. The the, the, the strength, the power, the motivation, and the purpose for all of our working in a relationship, all of our loving in a relationship, is a, re, is a result. It derives itself from God, and it points back to God. So look with me, if you will, First Peter chapter 3. Let me read the first several verses for us, and then we'll just kind of pick this apart piece by piece. I want to provide a little bit of an overview and then we're going to come back and we're going to press in a little bit more, maybe however briefly, this week and pick it up more next week in terms of of what does this mean for us in terms of a relationship and how does this show Christ? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. If you're using a, a pew Bible, it's on page 1015. Please turn there and follow along with us. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, 
when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter has been using the worst-case scenarios. He's been using the scenario of submission to government in chapter 2, verse 13. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you know it was not a government that loved Jesus in any way. It was hostile towards the faith. And yet, the, the people who had experienced the backhand of the government who had had their property confiscated, who were exiles and strangers pushed out of, of their homeland, pushed into these new territories. It, it, was, it was to this government they were supposed to submit, the worst case scenario. And yet, the prevailing command, the exhortation to them was submit. Submit not, not because they're right and good and just. Submit because you love and trust God. And then he transitions to chapter 2, verse 18, and, and he begins to press into another really volatile situation when he talks about slaves and their response to masters. He says, those of you who are slaves and who are doing good and getting beaten even for doing good, if you take it patiently and you endure, this is commendable before God. This, it says, is gracious. This is a gracious thing. And, and it's just one word in the Greek. This is grace, which means that's where you see God's presence and power in your life. You want to experience God? You want to know him firsthand? Believe in who he says he is. Trust him when things are hard. And now he transitions to, to another very difficult situation. And the scenario here that we're finding in chapter 3 is a, is a husband and a wife and who, had, who had become married, who had gotten married before either of them were converted. But somewhere along the way, this wife and husband hear the gospel and her heart is drawn into faith in God. And, and now there, there is something that is separating her in terms of communion and worship, her faith in God has now created something that sets her against or could potentially set her against her husband. And yet, Peter gives her encouragement and instruction. The, the challenges that you face, I want you to understand, are not overlooked. That God understands the difficulties that you're experiencing. And I want you to know that nothing you experience in terms of suffering is wasted. In God's economy, every injustice that you endure, if you take it patiently for the sake of God, God will use to accomplish his purposes. Nothing is wasted. These women to whom Peter is writing had some unique challenges. Challenges that, by the way, none of us will ever understand here in America in the 21st century. They were living in a, in a time and an age in this Greek, uh, Greco-Roman culture where women received little or no respect. As long as they lived in their father's house, 
They were subject to a Roman law where the father was the ultimate authority over them. It was granted, he was granted the ultimate decision-making power of life and death over his daughter. If he decided she should be killed, it was immaterial. It was something that he could just decide without consequence. And when this woman was handed over, by the way, remember back in the first century, most of these marriages were arranged. She didn't even have a choice in the matter. He would hand that responsibility, that legal authority over to the husband, and then he would take over where he left off, where the father left off. Husbands had a similar kind of legal authority. And society regarded women in the first century as mere servants who were to stay at home and obey their husbands. The greatest uh, measure of submission to husbands in the first century was aligning themselves to the religion of their husbands. They had no voice, no ability to, to decide who they were going to follow in terms of religion. They needed to submit themselves to their husband and, and follow whatever pagan gods in worship that the husband would follow. By addressing wives in this letter, Peter does several things for this audience. Of, of wives. First, he affirms their dignity. He helps to, to raise and draw attention to the value that they bring to the table because they bear the image of God. There is dignity as a woman. He also affirms women for their faith. They're called by God. They're chosen by God. They are precious to God. God has made them with this identity, and we, we find uh, the same kind of conclusions that, that, that Paul will draw in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. In God's economy, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And, and once God has done a work of, of calling you to faith, there is no differentiation between slave or free, male or female, that you are one in Christ Jesus because he is, his identity is shaped in you as a precious one, one who is chosen by, by God and precious to him. Peter makes that point in our passage today. With a twist, he says, they're holy women of God who, just like Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, they are, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What Paul points to here as the composite or the identity of those who are in faith being sons of Abraham, Peter will say, he'll make the similar connection, you can be a daughter of Sarah. The covenant seal is upon you if you submit in a way that showcases trust and confidence in God. You can be a woman of strength. You can be a woman who calls down the strength of God into your marriage. Instead of depending on the strength, receiving strength from your relationship, you can bring strength to your relationship as you rest in the work and power of God. You can become a woman of strength. But that strength that Peter is pointing to is countercultural. 
It's counterintuitive. It's a strength of fearlessness that comes as women understand that God is in control and they can trust God. They don't need to manipulate the circumstances. They can believe that God will intervene on their behalf and they can trust in a way that is quiet and gentle as we'll see in our passage this morning. There are three ways that women can can become women of strength and the first is found in verses one and two. They anchor their faith in God. That's the first thing. You want to be a woman of strength? Whether you're married or single, I want you to understand the, the standard is the same. If you want to be a woman of strength, trust in God. Put your faith in God. As Peter commends these women in chapter 3, verse 1. Notice, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. Now he's drawing a contrast now. He, he wants you to understand, Peter wants you to understand there is now a distinction that, is, that has taken place. Husbands that don't obey and the, and the assumption is then that the wives do obey the word. Now, now what is going on here? We're going to look at this a little bit more in just a moment. But, but I, when you hear the word obey, I want you to understand he's talking about faith. Obedience to the word is faith in God. The the two are synonymous in in Peter's mind. He's been making a case for this already. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, you either come to the word or you reject the word. In chapter 2, verse 7, you believe in the word or you disbelieve the word. In chapter 2, verse 8, you obey the word or you disobey the word. He'll say in chapter 3, verse 20, Speaking of the spirits who are judged and imprisoned, we're going to get this in several weeks from now. But he says, notice at the very end of chapter 3, verse 20, they did not obey. And then in chapter 4, verse 17, speaking of the judgment that God is going to bring on the earth, he uses this word, those who do not obey the gospel of God. Fundamentally, these are husbands who disobey the word and thus disbelieve in God. These are women who need to be women of the word. They are anchoring their faith in God because they're deriving their faith and confidence in Anna and bolstering it in the living word of God, the imperishable seed of the word of God. They're digging their roots deep into the word and what's coming out in their hearts is this steady, fearless, courageous faith in God. The husbands in this passage Those who disobey the word are those who disbelieve. But faith isn't just faith for salvation. Faith is faith that that flows out in this consistent, daily, um, faithful living of these women. As we see in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. In hearing by the word of God. as As they are orienting themselves to the word of God, this faith in God is playing out in submission to their husbands. They're women of the word. But they're also women who trust in God. They're women who trust in God. It shows up in their behavior. The just shall live by faith. And we see the the faith in, that's on the inside bearing fruit on the outside. Notice, on two occasions here in verses 1 and 2, it says, 
that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives at the end of verse 1. It says in verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Faith in God has produced behavior. This inner security, this inner confidence, this inner belief in who God is, is bearing fruit in trust and faith and behavior and conduct. It's the same word that we've seen, this word submission. Upatasso has shown up twice already. One for our response to government being submissive and, and one in our response to, of, of slaves to masters. Be submissive. But make no mistake, these women are not weak women. These are women of strength, women of courage, women of valor, Women who are not afraid with any fear. These are women who are confident, courageous, and moving in a direction to love and submit to husbands because of submission and obedience to God. I want to spend uh, the bulk of our time this morning just walking through what submission is not. And then towards the end of our time together, I want to, I want to talk about then what submission is. Want to clear up any of the of the uh, misunderstandings that may exist regarding submission that we'll see here in our text today. First, I want you to know from verse one that submission is not something a husband demands. Submission is not something a husband demands, and we're going to dig into this more next week. But 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 I want you to notice here at the very beginning, it says likewise. Wives, be submissive. <laughs> the, the exhortation, the instruction is going to women, not to men. It's not husbands. Uh, flex your muscles and exert your authority and make sure that your wife is being submissive the way she's meant to be submissive. This is not about him stepping into a role and demanding something that he thinks he deserves. This is voluntary. This is something that a, that a woman will do, a wife will do, as she recognizes who God is and what Jesus has done for her, that he is in control. And she voluntarily lays down and says, I will submit for the sake of obedience to Christ and for the sake of the gospel. I want the picture of Jesus to be preeminent in my relationship. This is a command to women, to women, to encourage them. And it's meant to be something that she says, I will do. And she does it on her own, with her own volition. Second, submission is not meant, it does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. And if you have, I may have been missing the word not in the notes, so it, it is supposed to be, does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. <laughs> yeah. Notice she is a Christian, and he is not a Christian. There could not be a, uh, a more significant disagreement in all the universe than that. She does not agree with him in terms of faith in God. This would have flown in the face of the culture of the day. 
where women were meant to align their hearts to their husband in terms of worship. And yet, in the most important decision of life, she does not agree with her husband. And Peter nowhere encourages her to put away her faith. He calls her to embrace faith for the sake of loving her husband, submitting to him, and showing him the gospel. He tells her to act in accordance with the faith that she's been given, the pattern of Christ who submitted himself to the will of the Father and moved through the suffering of the cross. Third, submission is not leaving your will at the wedding altar. Submission is not leaving your will at the wedding altar. Again, from verse 1, here in the text, here's a a woman who has uh, received and heard the gospel The indication is that that she has responded to the word that she's heard and that her husband, having heard it at the same time, it says that um, he's he's disobedient to the word. It it seems to indicate that, that she has aligned her heart and her will to the gospel. She's heard the call of God in her life. She responded to that call in accepting Christ in salvation, and he has not. That his will has rejected the gospel. That in hearing this testimony of who Jesus is, of hearing about sin in his life, about hearing that Jesus is the only way of salvation, of recognizing that, that he must confess his sin and believe in his heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and that he needs to make Jesus the, the Lord and Savior of his life, preeminent one, that she has embraced that truth. Her will has aligned with God's will for her, but he has chosen to reject it. His will has rejected the one who has called him. Third, or fourth, excuse me, submission does not mean avoiding efforts to change your husband. Submission does not mean avoiding efforts to change your husband because this whole passage is about her affection, her desire, her longing to change him. But how she goes about that process is not the way that the world would tell you to change your husband. The way that she is called to change her husband is without a word. You can win him, notice, so that even If some do not obey the word, they may be one. May be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. This whole passage is about change. This whole passage is about the longing and yearning of a woman's heart to see her husband come to faith in Jesus. And it's the most profound change in the universe. This is how to make that change happen. Not by being stronger, but by inviting divine strength to intervene. Fifth, submission does not mean putting the will of the husband above the will of Christ. Submission is a bending of will. It is a submitting of will to husband. It is an obedience in that respect. There is a sense in which a, a wife aligns her heart to her husband, but it is, it is not aligning her heart to her husband at the expense of aligning her heart to God. We find in verse 
6, chapter 3, verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, little L, or Sir. He is not the Lord supreme. He is the Lord in terms of the one who has been given authority on earth over her. But she is a follower of Jesus first. She's obedient to God first. She is called to align her heart to Christ first. And I love how Peter puts this, and it's the same way in every passage that talks about submission of wives to husbands. It says, to your own husband, which continues to affirm that women are not inferior in any way to men. But as God has divinely prescribed this order of authority, they're aligning their heart to the standard that God has set entrusting God to work out his will in their relationship. Sixth, submission does not mean that a wife gets her spiritual strength from her husband. And this is so, so important. Notice in chapter 3, verse 5, it says, For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. We're going to speak about this in just a bit. But the strength comes from God from hope in God, for, from a realization that, that God can do a work in their husband's life. They're not getting strength from the relationship, otherwise they would be depleted. They're getting strength from God for their relationship. Now certainly, in the relationships, hopefully, that are here represented this morning, as husbands who love Christ, you are seeking to do this for your wives. You're, you're seeking to, to love them and, and encourage them and lead them in spiritual things. You have that responsibility. But wives, don't count on your husbands to do this for you. You don't need your husbands to do this for you. You would certainly enjoy that process, but you can still be a woman of strength as you hope in God and not hope in your husband. And you can provide strength for the relationship, for your family, as you hope in him, and not depend on your husband to do that work for you. This text is not about how you get strength from your husband, but how you get strength for your husband. Seventh, submission does not mean that a wife should act in fear. We see that in verse 6. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Whatever submission means, whatever your ideas of, of submission looks like in the home, it is not about fear. It's not about cowering. It's not about being coerced. It's about acting in a way that is respectful of God, preeminently that will play out in a respect and love for your husband. It's an act of freedom that is fearless because it finds strength that flows from hope in God. Finally, submission is not a first century issue. Again, we, we looked at verses 5 and 6 as Peter is dealing with what would be his contemporary audience. He wants them to know that this isn't just something that is culturally locked in. It's something that, that transcends culture and goes all the way back to the original covenant uh, um, family. Notice, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. 
by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The covenant community is is front and center in Peter's attention. He wants them to understand that, that what was What is true of them today has been true ever since God called Abraham out of Haran into Canaan and called him to be a nation, called him to be his own special nation, the covenant community that that began with Abraham. And you can be part of the process. You can be part of this community if you act the same way that Sarah did for her husband. Be a person who anchors your faith in God. Trust him. Believe him. Second, find your beauty in God. Find your beauty in God. Verses three and four. It says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Peter wants his audience, these wives, to know, don't strive for external beauty. It's not that you let it go altogether. But when you're paying attention to beauty, when you're seeking to be a woman who is, who is lovely in every way, put your focus on the things that will last. Put your focus on the things that matter. Put your focus on the things that will really have an effect. Don't strive for external beauty. You may be asking yourself, like I was, how does this really fit? How does a woman who's trying to win her husband to faith, what does it have to do with beauty? What's the correlation here? Peter, what, what is going on in your mind? Why is this important to you? I think why it's important to Peter is because he knows what women throughout history have sought to do to gain favor over their husband, and that is to use the one thing that guys pay attention to, and that is beauty. And women have learned that if you are attractive enough, you can use that to your advantage. And men, who throughout history have been seduced by beauty, can be manipulated to do whatever the beautiful woman wants him to do. And and Peter wants his audience, these wives, however beautiful they may have been on the outside, to understand if you're going for internal change, don't put your stock in external beauty. It won't accomplish anything for you. It won't do what you want it to do. Put your attention on the things that matter. The external appearance that you bring to the table will not create that inner change that you're looking for. You may be able to, to, to influence in a, certain, in a certain way for a certain temporary period of time, but, but what you're after is something that is deep, something that gets to the heart, something that changes him from the inside. And if you want to change the inside, then you must be changed from the inside out. Focus on the beauty that matters. Focus on the beauty that that captures attention in the right way and draws them not to you as the center, but draws them to Jesus because he's the only one that can really change them in the way that you want them to be changed. So rather than focusing and striving for external beauty, 
Pursue the beauty of the heart. Pursue the beauty that matters. Notice it says again in verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Peter has been working on this word since the beginning of this letter. He, he, he wants to, to draw the, the, the distinction between what is temporary and what is eternal. What is earthly and what is heavenly. What is, what is going to fade and what's going to last. He, he wants them to understand that, that everything that is happening here on, on this planet, on this earth, is, is just temporary. Don't, don't put your hope in this life. Put your hope in what's coming in the future. In that imperishable beauty. In chapter 1, verse 4, Peter draws attention to the imperishable inheritance. In chapter 1, verse 7, he draws attention to imperishable faith. In chapter 1, verse 18, he draws attention to the imperishable redemption that they have. In chapter 1, verse 21, 23, excuse me, he says, not with the perishable seed, but with imperishable, the living and abiding word of God. Time and time again, Peter wants to help draw their attention to things that last. Things of significance. Things that will never fade away. Think bigger. Think greater. Think eternal. Think God's glory. And they do this by, by allowing God to do a work on the inside that, that begins to, to, to show up on the outside. This commitment to who God is will, will show up in a gentle spirit. And by the way, this word gentleness is, is used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, where it says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So this isn't just a feminine quality, by the way. It is a quality for all those who seek to be godly. <laughs> you you want to be godly? Be gentle. You want to be like Jesus? Be gentle. Because we find in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You point to Jesus through your gentleness. And you point to Jesus through your quietness. This word quietness is, is also the word for peace or serenity. It's the word of this quiet confidence that God is in control. So this, imagine this, this lake that, that has no ripples in the morning. This peace that is, that is pervading this life because... However troubling the waters may be underneath, however difficult things might be, this wife is so settled in her heart because she believes that God is accomplishing his best in her and his best in her husband as she aligns her heart and, and uh, pursues the beauty that, that is within, not without. And notice who the audience is. The, the audience is that her beauty is precious in the sight of God. The ultimate audience. The ultimate evaluator. The ultimate one that you seek to please is, is God. You want to have a life that is precious in the eyes of God? Be a woman who is 
who is desiring to pay attention to adorn your life with the beauty of the heart. And finally, in verses 5 and 6, we've read these verses several times, but I want to just point your attention again to not just anchoring your faith in God and finding your beauty in God, but placing your hope in God. Place your hope in God. It says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Hope, which is the most important comment in this verse. It is the, it is the, the root and anchor of, what, uh, of all the other uh, fruit that shows up in this woman's life. Is there's this anchored hope in God. And going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 13, where we're told to, to set your hope fully on the grace that is coming. This is what should be true of every believer, but, but especially true of women in very difficult things as they hope in God and trust in God and believe in God and know that God will accomplish his work in the lives of their husbands. This is the root of her submission, hope in God. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband. She, puts, she doesn't put her hope in her looks. She puts her hope in God's ability to work in her husband's life to change him. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, with church history at all, but Augustine is one of the, the church fathers that, that we um, have benefited from because of just the, the volumes of theology that he that he. Uh, gave to us. But Augustine didn't always live a life that was pure and holy. But he had a mother named Monica who prayed for him consistently. And because of Monica's perseverance and love for Augustine and, and heart to see him come to Christ, eventually God worked in Augustine's life and brought him to salvation. But Monica was also married to a pagan. His father... Augustine's father was Patricius. She was also instrumental in the conversion of her husband. And, and, and this is the words that Augustine wrote about his mom, his tribute to his mom. And listen to see if you can hear 1 Peter chapter 3 written in his words. She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for Christ. Speaking to him, uh, of Christ by her conduct, by which Jesus made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. The testimony of a woman who was strong in faith and hope in Christ to do a work in her husband's life. Dear women of Maranatha, whether you're married or single, do not undermine the privilege you have of pointing your men, the, the men in your life, whether they're friends or husbands, pointing your men to Jesus. You have an immense privilege of doing that in a marriage relationship as you submit to Christ by obedience to your husband and as you're a single lady of, of making the, the affection of your life so centered on the things of God that, that the relationships that you have, the friendships that you have, are pointing your men, your friends to Jesus. Don't undermine the great privilege you have 
the influence that you carry, the strength that you have, pulling down from the strength of God as you hope in him, and you can apply in every relationship, every sphere that you're in. Hope in God. God, may we do that as men and women, those who love you, those who trust you, those who believe in your sovereignty. May we be those who hope in you by submitting to the authorities you've placed over us so we can point to Jesus. That every time they see our submission, they would see Christ. Oh, may that be true. And may we have the joy, oh God, to see many come to faith in Jesus because of our willingness to trust you in this very hard way. We thank you for your love for us and your example in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you as you go.